My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilderness Church, and it's really good to be together and be worshiping with all of you and enjoying God's presence and, and just the freedom that is here. Appreciated those sisters up here who are dancing up here. You, you know, when we have celebration services like that, that's a good thing to do. Just such freedom. That's good. Be free and uh, enjoy the presence of God. And then in a little bit here, we'll get into the word. Uh, speaking of visitors, by the way, hello to the folks from Sioux Falls who came all the way out here just to, we have Pod Rishners making like his pilgrimage. So, hey, hey, there you are. Good to have you here. Had some folks from Kentucky in the first service. And so it's just, so far as I know, you get the commuter award. Uh, every Sunday, a couple weeks ago, we had someone from Ireland. So that's good stuff. All right, well, this morning we're going into, I think it's our third week in this series, The Great Reversal. We're looking at the teachings of Jesus in Luke chapter 14 and Luke chapter 15, which are really centered on how the kingdom reverses all of our ordinary ways of thinking and ordinary ways of living. And so we're calling it the great reversal. Last week, we looked at a passage from Luke 14, where Jesus tells the story of the parable of the great banquet. And those who were expected to come to the host's dinner decline the offer. So the host then invites everybody and goes out into the poor sections of town and then out into the countryside and invites the the, the poor and the lame and the disabled and, and the judged and all those who normally don't get invited to parties. And among other things, we noted there that, that the invitation to these folks, and really it's God's invitation to us, isn't based on any precondition in us. It's not based on our social standing or our righteousness or anything of the sort. The invitation is given on the basis of the graciousness of the host, that is God, and the abundance of his resources and the fact that he wants his house full. And so that message emphasized how everybody is invited. Uh, As you are, come into this great banquet, and it's about feasting on the the love and the grace of God throughout eternity. That is the kingdom of God. As we enjoy God, and God enjoys us. That's what will be going on throughout eternity, and that, in fact, is the reason why you exist, is to be invited into that banquet. Now, this morning's message, as we continue our study of Luke, we just go through the Bible like this, uh, and... I love the practice because it forces you to be balanced. And this morning is a balancing message. We're going to see that Jesus teaches what looks like uh, that there are, there are preconditions to coming in the kingdom. It looks like the opposite of last week. In fact, we're going to see here that Jesus says, if you want to come into the kingdom and be my follower, if you want to feast at the banquet table of the Lord, you have to give up everything. Give up everything. Now, this is a tension or a paradox that runs throughout the New Testament. On the one hand, you find this incredible, remarkable, unconditional freedom and grace. On the other hand, you have this very austere, very serious, very heavy, if you will, call to discipleship. And that also was unconditional. How do you put these two things together? Jesus, on the one hand, says, Come to me, all ye that are weak and weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then on the other hand, we'll see this morning, he says, Come and take up your cross and follow me. Well, cross is heavy. So how do you put those two things together? I don't think we can. I don't think that tension is resolvable unless you adopt a new paradigm for your thinking. And the, my, 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 my hope and prayer is that this message results, for some of us at least, in a new paradigm 
a new way of thinking about things, a new way of hearing the gospel. It will be, if you will let it, be revolutionary. So, Lord, let this happen. So let's read the passage. And then I'll I'll make a few comments as we go through. We start with verse 25 of Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, or it says, Luke says, "There there were large crowds that were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. Doesn't sound too gracious, does it? Now, you need to know that when Jesus says, hate your mother and father, spouse and children, and even your own life. Jesus also teaches that we're to love our mother and father, honor our mother and father, love our spouse, and love our children. And in fact, he's came that we might have abundant life. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, which means we're supposed to love our life. So how do you put these two things together? Well, you need to know that Jesus is using very traditional, very typical Jewish hyperbole here. And the purpose of hyperbole, as we've said a number of times, is uh, you state something in a real exaggerated way to emphasize a point. And what Jesus is in essence saying here is this, that if we're going to follow him, our allegiance to him and his kingdom must be so much greater than our allegiance to anything else that the comparison is between love and hate. That that's how, how extreme our allegiance to God and his kingdom must be. He's really saying we're to have one ultimate allegiance and one alone. In other words, there's to be no competitors. No competitors, not even family, not even our own life. Nothing is to compete with our allegiance to the kingdom of God if, in fact, we're going to be participants of the kingdom of God and followers of Jesus. And then he goes on. He says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, these folks knew what crosses were. There weren't little chains you wear around your neck. Uh, A cross was the uh, vehicle of execution on the part of the Romans. They would crucify people. It was their way of making a point, reminding people who's in charge. They'd take criminals and publicly crucify them, nailing them to crosses. That's how Jesus died. And for some of these criminals, they were forced to carry their cross on the way up to the top of the hill. That's what Jesus had to do. And so when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, carry your cross, he's really saying to them, be prepared to live a crucified life. A, be prepared to experience a slow, painful, and just like those criminals up there, a shameful death. If you're going to follow me. Woo-hoo! No one's running the aisles right now. No one's saying, yippee. All right, let's move on. Then Jesus says this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to, to complete it? Because if you lay the foundation and not able to finish it, everyone who sees it is going to ridicule you, saying, this person cannot. I began to build, but wasn't able to finish. Or suppose that a king is about to go to war against another king, as kings always do. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he'll send a delegation, while the other is still a long way off, and ask for terms for peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. What Jesus is saying is this. Okay, I, I know that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm told you you have to crucify yourself and you have to have no other allegiance except the kingdom. Um, and in fact, you have to give up everything. So I want you to think about it. I want you just to think about it. 
So like if you're going to build a tower or go to war, you'd first think about what you're getting into. He's telling his audience to think about it. And then he says this. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor even for the manure pile. It has to be thrown out. Now, what he's saying there is is this. The purpose for salt is to be salty. What other purpose does salt have? And so if salt loses its saltiness, it's absolutely worthless. So also, Jesus is saying, the purpose for coming into the kingdom, what it means to come into the kingdom, is this radical discipleship, this singular allegiance to God, this carrying your cross, this giving up everything. That's the salt of the kingdom. That's what it's there for. So if kingdom people or those who profess to follow me don't engage in that kind of discipleship, well, then what's the point? In other words, he's saying, this teaching he's giving us right now, this strong and confrontational teaching is all important. Everything hangs upon this. This is the saltiness of the kingdom. And it does sting a little bit. And then Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus knows that this teaching is so outside of our ordinary way of doing life, our ordinary way of thinking about life. It's the opposite of the way we tend to think about life. He knows, he knows that not everyone's going to hear this. Not in a way where they're going to receive it and understand it. In fact, most people won't. And so he just says, whoever's got ears to hear, let them hear. And we won't understand this. We won't hear it either unless we really submit to God and ask him to open up our ears and our understanding. So let's spend a moment doing that right now. For those in this auditorium, those who are listening through podcasting, hello, podrishioners, or through television, you pray this prayer as you're listening to this. Lord, open up our ears. Lord, open up our minds. Lord, open up our heart. Lord, Lord, break our wills. Lord, lower our defense mechanisms. Anything that would keep us from hearing your word and all of its radical revolutionary implications for our life, Lord God, lower all of that so we might receive your word, hear your word, and be transformed by your word. To people who actually carry out your will on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name and all God's people who prayed that prayer said, Amen. Amen. All right. So there's large crowds following Jesus. Luke notes that. And as they're following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus turns around and he quite randomly just blurts this out. Now, it's a large crowd, so we'd have to talk kind of loud. They didn't have microphones back then. So imagine Jesus walking to, on his way to Jerusalem. There's a large crowd following him. And he turns around and says, whoa, 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 wait a second. I want you to know that if you don't hate your mom and dad and, and spouse and children and even your own life, then I don't want you following me. And, and if you're going to follow me, be prepared to take up your cross like those criminals and die a slow, painful, shameful death. If you're going to follow me. In fact, if you're going to follow me, I want you to know that you've got to give up everything and, and the kingdom has got to have your only allegiance. Great sales pitch, Jesus. And see, Jesus knows that, that, that most of this crowd, we know this from, from, from studying ancient Judaism, most of this crowd, you know, there's been a buzz about Jesus, he's been doing his miracles and stuff, and so there are people who are reporting that he might be the Messiah. So they're following this potential Messiah to Jerusalem. And, and what we know about first century Jerusalem is that most of these folks would have been thinking that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's going to kick some Roman behind. He's going to get the Romans off their back. 
Uh, And so they're looking for a Messiah who would defeat their enemies. They're looking for a Messiah who would solve their many, many political issues that they're always trying to loop Jesus in on. They're looking for a Messiah who will restore the dignity and value and and honor of their holy nation. And so they're looking for a Messiah who's going to bless them. Uh, They're looking for a Messiah who's going to put more food on the table and give them more freedom and more honor. And now, no, that's not a carnal, evil thing. These, these are sincere people because they think that that's what God wants. Of course, God is for the Jewish nation and we are Jewish people. And, and so for God to liberate us and to bless us and restore our nation and solve our issues, well, that's good for us and it's good for God because we know that God's on our side. And since Jesus, you know, it looks like Jesus is going to be the Messiah, well, then we're all for Jesus. And so what he's got is a large crowd of cheerleaders behind him saying, Go, Jesus! Hooray, Jesus! We're for you, Jesus! Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus turns to them and, and I no doubt dampens their enthusiasm a little bit. See, they want to put Jesus and the whole kingdom stuff into their theological box. And what Jesus does is basically says, You know what? If you're going to be on board with this program, you don't put... God and the kingdom in your box. You rather fit into his box. He calls the shots, not you. And so Jesus turns to them and and gives this very strong crowd thinning out message. (laughs) What impresses me is that Jesus clearly, what impresses me is that Jesus clearly is not interested in size and the bigness of a crowd for the sake of, of, of the size and bigness of the crowd. He's, he's, not, he's not very interested in, in, in the enthusiasm as an end in and of itself. Got a large crowd. He's Mr. Popularity right now. He could ride this. He's, he, he's, he's, he's you know, really successful by ordinary world standards. It'd be easy to say, man, God is really moving. Look at that crowd. Look at the enthusiasm. Man, what a support. But Jesus doesn't seem to be very impressed with that. He's not interested in lowering the bar to get as many people in the door as possible, sign on the dotted line, and pray the sinner's prayer. The only thing that matters for Jesus, clearly, is that he's doing God's will, the will of his Father. That is the kingdom of God, to be under the dome in which God reigns. The only thing that matters for him is being faithful to the call of the Father and inviting other people in on that call. But to invite other people in on that call means you're inviting them in on that call, not something else that maybe would please them a little more, would attract more people. No, he, the only thing that matters, the success for him, is doing the will of God. How big it is doesn't matter. How small it is doesn't matter. Whether the crowd's enthusiastic doesn't matter. Whether they're dull as can be, that doesn't matter. The success is not what the world calls success, but rather just being faithful to the call of God. Carrying out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And if that produces great crowds, wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But if it leaves you all alone as it did Jesus, so be it. If the crowd's really enthusiastic, wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But if they're not, well then, they turned hostile to you. Well then, so be it. The only criteria that counts is doing the will of God. And so Jesus turns to this crowd and he puts all the cards on the table. I want you to know what you're getting into. If you're going to follow me. If you're going to follow me, it's going to be about God and his kingdom. It's not going to be about you. If you're going to follow me, you can't try to put me and the kingdom in your box. Rather, you've got to reorientate your life so that you're in the kingdom box. And you've got to know that I haven't come, sorry to disappoint you, to defeat your enemies. Rather, I've come to invite you in on a kingdom where you're going to learn to love your enemies. 
And I'm sorry I didn't come to solve all of your political problems, but I did come to, to invite you in on a kingdom that transcends all your political problems. I'm sorry I'm not here to uh, restore and advance the interests of your sacred nation. Uh, rather, I've come to invite you in on a kingdom that transcends all nations and transcends all nationalism. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I haven't come to make your life a little nicer and a little sweeter. In fact, if you follow me, you've got to be prepared that your life might get a whole lot more miserable. But I've come to invite you into a kingdom and to a banquet table where if you'll feast on this, your perspective on your life troubles will be altogether different. And however miserable it might get, you can have a joy unspeakable that is, unfull, that, that is full of glory. He puts all the cards on the table. If you're going to enter into this kingdom and follow me, then you've got to know that, that God's got to your be your only allegiance. No, no competition here. If you're going to follow me, be prepared to live a sacrificial life that may feel to you like a long, slow, painful uh, death. You may, in fact, be ridiculed by others in your culture because you're going to look different. It may feel shameful to you at times because you're going to look different. And you've got to be prepared to give up everything. In fact, you have to give up everything if you're going to enter into this kingdom because it's all going to come under the reign of God. It's all going to belong to God. This is a strong teaching. This is a harsh teaching. This is not a popular teaching. And so Jesus pauses and he says, I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it. I, 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 you don't build a tower before you estimate what it's going to cost. And you don't go to war until you really assess whether you can win this thing. So also... If you're going to embark on this journey, count the cost. There's a cost that you have to pay. It's not a popular message. Eventually, it would turn the entire crowd away when he illustrates it with his own life. But that didn't bother Jesus because the only success for Jesus, the only criteria of success, was doing the will of the Father, was carrying out the will of the Father. Uh, it's It's about... manifesting what it looks like when God reigns in a human life. Size doesn't matter. Popularity doesn't matter. Getting as many people in the door as possible, that doesn't matter. What the world calls success doesn't matter. Doing God's will, carrying the cross, giving up all for the cause of Christ, that's the only thing that matters. That's the saltiness of the kingdom. And Jesus was entirely unwilling to lower the bar or to give it a little more popular gloss in order to keep the crowds. It just didn't matter. Now, here's what concerns me, folks. It seems to me that a good deal of American Christianity does just the opposite of what Jesus does. It seems to me that a good deal of American Christianity, in fact, looks very much like the crowd looked. A good deal of American Christianity tries to make Jesus and the gospel and the call to enter in the kingdom something sellable, something marketable, something attractive, something appealing. Uh, and a, and a, to a large extent, in American Christianity, we don't put all the cards on the table before someone signs up for this. In fact, in many segments of American Christianity, they don't even know that there are cards to put on the table. And in many segments of American Christianity, we don't tell people to count the cost before they enter in on this. In fact, in many segments of American Christianity, they're not even aware that there is a cost to count. And in many segments of American Christianity, we don't tell people that you have to give up everything to enter into the kingdom. In fact, in many segments of American Christianity, this is one of our sales pitches, we tell people you can keep your everything and we'll add to it. Jesus will help you add to it. As wonderful and as nice as your life already is, well, it'll become even nicer if you'll just uh, make Jesus a part of it and join our church and, 
And in fact, if you, if you become a Jesus follower at our church, well, well, Jesus will help you defeat your national enemies. And he, and he, by all means, is here to restore our righteous nation. And he'll help us uh, fight our national causes. And he'll solve all of our political questions. We vote Jesus around here. Yes, sir, indeed. And if you come to our particular brand of, of this marketable kingdom, well, then you got to know we got good parking space. And you get the, the music just the way you like it. we got great children's programs. And, 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 and you get to have, have, have coffee cup holders in your pews that are, are nicely padded so your bum bums don't hurt. I mean, uh, we, we sell the thing. It's attractive and we compete with other churches because there's only so many sinners to go around and we all want to lie and share the portion. So we say, come over here and we'll make it sweeter and nicer and more beneficial for you. Which is exactly what the crowds that were following Jesus wanted. Which is exactly what Jesus rebuked. That way of doing things may build a crowd in America, but that's not the kingdom. It's not. That's religion at its best. That's nationalism at its best. But that's not the kingdom. It may get very, very big and it may build a lot of enthusiasm and it may even do some good. It's not all bad, but it's not the kingdom. It may look very successful by the world's standards. It may get you a lot of applause and cover on religious magazines because you got the biggest crowd but it's not the kingdom. Getting people in as many as possible and keeping them, uh, if they just sign on the dotted line at the minimal level without any cost, that's not the kingdom. And according to Jesus, the only thing that matters is the kingdom, and the kingdom is about doing God's will, about being faithful to God's will, about carrying the cross in service to others. It's about giving up all for the, for, for, for the cause of Christ. It's about having a singular, absolute allegiance that dwarfs in significance all of our other allegiances. It's about looking like Jesus because Jesus embodied the kingdom. He was the perfect manifestation of the kingdom. He was the incarnation of the kingdom. He was the walking, talking version of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So to be in the kingdom is to look like Jesus, to follow Jesus. It's to have one allegiance like Jesus did. It's to give up all like Jesus did. It's to carry the cross like Jesus did. It's to love others like Jesus did. It's to serve others like Jesus did. It's to care about the poor like Jesus did and to welcome the outcast like Jesus did and to liberate the oppressed like Jesus did and to bring wholeness to those who are ill like Jesus did and to love those who are judged by religion like Jesus did. That's the kingdom. That's the saltiness. That's the only criteria of success. Whether it's big or small matters nothing. Whether it's popular or or makes people revile you matters nothing. The only thing that matters is looking like Jesus, carrying out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there is, in all fairness, I should say, a way to get around this. And maybe some are interested in that. Uh, there's a nice exception clause we could throw in here. It's, it's, it's a very, very, very clever and it's very, very popular. It goes something like this. Well, see, what, what, what Jesus meant, here's what he meant. He meant that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to give up everything if he asks you. And you have to be willing to carry the cross if you're in a situation that's so unfortunate where you actually have to do that. And you have to be willing to make God your only allegiance if you're in a situation where that's required of you. You have to be willing to give it all up. But it doesn't mean you have to actually give it all up. And fortunately, we're in nice circumstances where we never have to give it all up. We don't have to give up anything. <laughs> Woohoo! Uh, but, but we would be willing to if he asked us. We're willing to. I love it. So many are willing to die for him, but living for him is kind of the more difficult thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is a nice exception clause. We'll be able to be willing to. 
And back in the first century, those poor folks living in their culture, they had to, and the early Christians, yeah, they had to give up everything. They had fed the lions and all that stuff. And, and throughout history, people in China, even now, Christians, they, they have to give up everything. But fortunately, we're in a quasi-Christian nation where we don't have to give up anything. Uh, but we'd be willing to. Uh, fortunately, we don't have to. And so we go on with our lives that look pretty much like the pagan lives all around us. But we'd be willing to. Now, listen, that's very, very clever. Uh, points given for cleverness. But as a matter of fact... It, it doesn't fly. In fact, it's, it's utterly impossible. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, uh, if you're going to follow me, you must be willing to carry the cross if you have to, but pray that you don't. No, he says, you must carry your cross. It's not rocket science. It doesn't say, if you're going to follow me, you, know, you, you must be willing to give up everything, but, but pray that you don't have to. No, he says, you have to give up everything. In fact, the whole New Testament emphasizes over and over and over again that the model, Jesus is the model for how we're to live. What it means to follow Jesus is that. That's the saltiness of the salt. If you don't have that saltiness, the salt is worthless. If you're not actually following Jesus, well, then saying you're following Jesus is worthless. It's, it, it, it just has no meaning whatsoever. Jesus' life is held up as the model. Jesus' death is held up as the model for all followers of Jesus to imitate at all times, in all places, in all cultures, no ifs, ands, or buts. John says, whoever says they live in him must live like him. That's what it means to live in him. Whoever, not just first century Christians, not just Christians in persecuted countries, all of us are called to surrender all to the kingdom, to carry a cross, to live a crucified lifestyle. This is the call on our life. Sorry, but this is what we sign up for. Oh, let's just go back to the, the question. How does that heavy, heavy, austere, all-or-nothing teaching square with the nice sermon we had last week. I can just imagine somebody, I'm sure, was here for the first time last week, and they loved it. Oh, grace, God's love, I just love it. They come back this week, and not so much. You know, it's like, can we have last week's message over again? That one was kind of nice. And, and how do we resolve this tension? How do we put these two things together? Come unto me, my yoke is easy. Carry your cross, it's very heavy. How do you put those two things together? I want to give you a paradigm here that I think is, is, is your only way to bring these two things together. And it is the saltiness of the salt. Everything hangs on this. It's a paradigm. Uh, and uh, it's so important that we have ears to hear. Otherwise, this is not going to land. Holy Spirit, be working as I share this. I'll give you two pictures here. Picture number one is what I call life in the flesh. Life in the flesh. The flesh is simply the biblical term for living as though Christ were not Lord. It's the normal secular way of doing life. Of course, you can have all sorts of beliefs about Jesus and God in the Bible, but you live. How you actually live is as though Christ were not Lord. Maybe an hour or two a week, Christ is Lord. You're thinking about it, but otherwise, your life is kind of a functional atheist life. Uh, Life in the flesh is, is life lived according to what Paul calls the pattern of this world. It's how most people live. In fact, it's the natural way of living in this fallen world. And in this flesh paradigm, you are the center of your life. You're the CEO of your life. You call all the shots. And so we all have a number of different aspects of our life, different obligations in our life, things that call for us to be aligned with. So here's me, and I'm the CEO of my life. 
And I have to somehow divide my time and energy and thought and affection between the various segments of my life. I give a certain slice of the pie to my family, another slice of the pie to my job, another slice of the pie to my small group, another slice of the pie to my civic activity. Uh, If you feel like you have some civic duties, uh, you have another slice of the uh, pie, hopefully, to your devotional life, your prayer life, reading the Bible, things like that. Of course, we all need a slice of our pie that is our leisure time, and another slice of the pie goes to church, and we try to juggle all of that torn in different ways but the main thing to notice here is that we call the shots it's our pie it's our life and we just try to meet the various uh, obligations as they arise and see if this is your paradigm and you're the center of your pie then your life is about you everything is ultimately about you so when you hear the gospel you hear it as about you So the purpose of Jesus, if you're living with this this paradigm, whatever else you may say you believe, what will actually happen is that you're going to try to fit Jesus into your pie. He'll get a slice of your pie. The kingdom will have a slice of your pie. And the purpose of including Jesus into your pie is to sweeten the pie. You know, he's, he's the pie sweetener. And, uh, he's going to help you do life a little better and, 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 you know, uh, Somehow organize all these competing alliances that you have because they compete with one another, you know, and you're pulled in all these different directions. You're saying, somebody help me with all this. I'm pulled in all these directions. Well, Jesus is there to help you do that. Jesus is there to to, to help with a lot of things. But the main thing to note is that he's there in your pie rather than the other way around. That's life in the flesh. And if you're thinking in terms of the flesh, then salvation is a part of your pie, and that just means you got your fire insurance. And grace is a part of the pie, and that's just sort of your... Your, your exception clause, when you sin, you get to appeal to grace and then, then it's covered, which means that you know, sinning isn't that big of a deal. If you're living in that self-centered pie, well, then you'll use everything to your advantage, including grace. And so you can call on grace anytime you want when you feel like sinning. And if you're thinking out of the self-centered pie, well then, when you hear the hard stuff about the gospel, giving up everything, it's very clever. And you, you insert a little clause there. Oh, if I was willing to, or if, if, if I had to. But I'll get to keep my pie until I have to. And I'm going to pray that I don't have to. But I'd be willing to if I had to. And even that's not out of your self-interest because if you didn't say that, well, then you might get in trouble with God, so you say it. Okay, that's diagram number one. That's life in the flesh. That's the normal way of doing life in the fallen world. And religion just sort of sanctifies that and blesses that and adds to it and supplements the sweetness of the pie. There's an entirely different kind of paradigm. And it's the one I believe Jesus is calling the crowd to. In this paradigm, we could call it life under the reign of God. This is the kingdom of God. And in this paradigm, Jesus owns the pie. Jesus owns all aspects of the pie, which is why the whole pie is under the reign of God. The pie is the domain of God's reign. When Jesus turns and confronts the crowds, he's doing it because this is what it means to enter the kingdom of God. This is simply what it means. It means that that God isn't a part of your pie, rather the whole pie belongs to him. And you're not the CEO any longer, Jesus is the CEO. Now you still have your family, in some sense your church, your leisure, your prayer life, civic activity, your group, your job, and all of that. And we still have to like, think about how we you know, uh, allocate our time. But see, in this paradigm, it all belongs to God. So really, you're not the CEO at all, you're the executor, because it all belongs to him. Your time is his time now. Everything belongs to him. Your family is no longer your family. 
It belongs to him. And your job belongs to him. Your money belongs to him. Your leisure time belongs to him. And it's just a matter of how he would have you uh, organize that and, and how he would have you live that out. Your life doesn't belong to you. That's the meaning of the kingdom of God. It now belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Living for God is no longer part of your life. One slice of your life, it's your whole life. And your allegiance to God isn't part of your life. It's the whole life. It, 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 it includes everything. So it's not a matter, and we talk like this sometimes, it's not a matter of saying, well, I have a duty to God and my family. No. You have a duty to God alone, which includes your family. And it's not that you have a duty to God, but also your, 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 your job. No. You have a duty to God alone, which includes your job. So also for every other area of our life, it all belongs to God. What it means to come into the kingdom is that we give up everything. We've lost everything because now it's all surrendered over to him. So the question is, Lord, how do you want me to live out your life? Uh, We die to ourselves as the CEO. We enthrone Christ and now everything is brought under his domain. Not, there's no competitors any longer, no competing interests. It's all a matter of integrating God into every area of our life uh, and, and uh, including, him, including him in it. God doesn't compete with family or job. Rather, God's, our allegiance to God includes family and job. Our allegiance to God includes civic, civic responsibilities. It's not a matter of God and Caesar. It's an allegiance to God that might include Caesar. I read a book recently called God and Government, and and the the book espoused a very common philosophy which uh, said that we have a dual allegiance, a dual allegiance to God and and country, God and state, God and Caesar, dual allegiance. And we got to balance this allegiance. And that's hard to do because, he said, our allegiance to Caesar, our allegiance to our nation, might mean that if you're a a, a leader in this, you might have to lie because that's what, for the good of the whole, you have to do that sometimes. You might even have to kill for the good good of the whole. But, you you know, it's okay to do that because we have an allegiance to to state that, that, that is alongside of our allegiance to God. And I submit to you that that is the exact wrong way to think about this, folks. I don't know where you find any of that in the Bible. We have an allegiance to God that includes some allegiance to the state, but the allegiance is to God. God tells us to submit to the authorities that are over us. God tells us to pray for the authorities that are over us. God tells us to pay taxes and things of that sort. So we do it. But we don't do it because we have a separate obligation to Caesar. We do it because we have our whole obligation is to God, and he tells us to do this to Caesar. God is our king, not any Caesar. Our one allegiance that includes all areas of our life is to God. We have one Lord, his his name is Jesus Christ. One master, Jesus Christ. One sovereign, his name is Jesus Christ. All of our allegiance is to him and to him alone. And he tells us you cannot serve two masters. It doesn't get any clearer than that. So our whole allegiance, total allegiance is to God. That's why if Caesar, if government, if state or nation ever tells us to do something that violates our, our, our walk with God, our allegiance to God, we have to say, sorry, no can do. You're going to have to kill us. Because our only allegiance is to God. And that includes every area of our life. A totally different paradigm when God is over the whole thing and Christ is in the center. I don't think we can really understand the gospel In fact, I know we can't understand the gospel so long as we're thinking in the first flesh paradigm because that distorts everything. If we're hearing the gospel in the flesh paradigm, we fit Jesus into our pie. He's part of our pie. And so we add salvation and we add grace and all the other things 
in service to ourselves as the CEO of our pie. Man, am I mixing analogies here this morning? The CEO of your pie. Well, hopefully you know what I mean. And so salvation means I get fire insurance. That's a part of my pie. And grace means I have a license to sin. That's a part of my pie. And when we hear the invitation to come for free to the kingdom, what the flesh mind hears is, ah, I get to go for free, which means I get to stay in charge. Nothing has to change. And then when we hear the austere message about how we need to die, take up a cross, live a cross lifestyle, give up everything, the flesh, if you're hearing that in the flesh, what you hear is, that's not nice. That's the meanie Jesus. That, that, that doesn't, that, 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 that you can't reconcile that with, with, with what you just told me about freedom. See, uh, Jesus is confronting this crowd for this reason. He's trying to get them, and if we have ears to hear, trying to get us, not just to tweak our life a little bit, to realter our pie organization a little bit, while we stay as a CEO in charge and own the pie, rather, he wants us to get rid of that whole pie, to die to the whole thing, to squish it, so that we are free to enter into the kingdom pie. What Jesus is doing, it looks like this. He's trying to transition us from pie number one to pie number two, life in the flesh to life under the reign of God. That process is not pleasant to those of us, and it's basically all of us, let's be honest here, who are strapped in the flesh, uh, it, it feels like we're being crucified. We're dying this slow death. We don't want to give up being CEO of our pie. We like being the CEO of our pie. And he calls us to give it all up. That's for everybody to do, not just those who are in unfortunate circumstances, because only by giving it all up can we enter into the reign of God where Jesus is at the center. The process of dying to ourself, crucifying ourself, is the process of letting go of the first paradigm and coming into the second paradigm. You've got to lose it all. And as long as you're in that flesh paradigm, that sounds meany, it sounds nasty, it sounds not nice, and a bunch of other things. But if you will die to that, take Jesus at his word and die to that, his promise, and there are some who can testify from experience that this is true, when you die to that flesh way of doing life and come under the reign of God, you'll discover a kind of life that you never otherwise would know. You'll discover a wellspring of living water that starts flowing up out of you. You'll discover the love and the power and the joy of God. you discover a peace that passes understanding. When you've lost it all, when you've lost it all, when you give up the reins, when you surrender it all, you may still legally own some stuff, but you realize that you're the, just the executor of God's estate now. And when you've lost all that, now you're a person who's got nothing to lose. And a person who's got nothing to lose is the freest person on the planet and also the most dangerous person on the planet in a good sense. Because now there's nothing that's going to keep you from going all the way and living radical uh, for for Christ and and serving others and, and carrying out the kingdom. When you've lost it all, you find a peace that you never otherwise would have. You may have lost half of your retirement two weeks ago, but if you understand the gospel then you won't be freaking out because you had lost it before you ever lost it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it wasn't yours to start with. God let you have it. Yeah, fine, but easy come, easy go. Life itself becomes an easy come, easy go kind of thing because you're already dead. If you're already dead, you don't fear death because you're already dead. And if you die to that self-centered pie way of living that's called the flesh, you come alive 
in the presence of God. Now, when the old flesh is dead, when that self-centered life is dead, now there's, there's no more blocks to the Spirit of God coming into your life and beginning to infuse you with Christ-like character. And over time, you begin to learn that serving others, living this self-sacrificial life, isn't the ter- terrible, crucified thing that the old flesh used to think it was. Rather, you begin to, like Jesus, see that there's a joy in giving, a joy in serving, a joy in living the kingdom life. Folks, this is how life was always meant to be lived. This is life lived at its best. This is life lived in God's joy. This is life lived dancing with God. But to get there, to come to this banquet table, to feast on the goodness and the love and the power of God, you have got to, I have got to die. Die. Everything has got to go. Everything. You can't tweak, you won't get there by tweaking the flesh system. You can make the flesh look a little more religious, a little nicer, a little this, that, whatever. But you're just tweaking the system and Jesus isn't interested in that. He's saying, die, die. (laughs) And the whole flesh goes, no, I don't want it, I don't want it. But if you'll just do it, you begin to find that there's this joy and there's this peace and there's this life. And and when you've lost everything, you've got nothing to lose. And you no longer whine so much. You no longer have to complain so much. You no longer striving. You no longer compartmentalize, being torn in all these different directions. You know, no, no, there's a thread that runs through the whole thing, and there's a wholeness that begins to develop because it's all submitted to God. That's how we're called to live. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. That's what it means. That's what it means to come into the reign of God. That's the saltiness. That's the saltiness. That's what it's there for. So the question is, the question really comes down to be this. Is Jesus, all spirituality stuff, church stuff, is this part of your life, like it's got a slice? Or is Christ your life? Does he have it all? Because he clearly is only interested in, here's the only offer on the table. (laughs) It's the only offer. People can tweak it and sell it and market it and lower the bar and all this other kind of stuff. That's what religion does. But the offer on the table is, it's an all or nothing thing for him. Now, Now, I'll say this. It's, of course, not the case that we at 1231 uh, on Sunday morning make a decision that's, that, okay, I'm going to go over here in the kingdom and I'll never go back there. You know what? You have to make the decision about 100 times a day and the flesh keeps pulling you back. Would it be a, a living sacrifice, it says in Romans 12, a living sacrifice offered up to God? The trouble with living sacrifices is they keep getting off the altar uh, and, and you got to keep putting it back up there, putting it back up there. I don't want to get crucified. I don't want to get me out of here. So, so you got to keep killing this thing. So th- but this is what discipleship means. And so I want to end by just asking God to give us wisdom right now, give us wisdom right now about ways in which we're making ourselves miserable by staying CEO, the center of the pie, o- owners of the pie. Holy Spirit, will you right now open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts? And change our wills if necessary. Influence our wills to submit to you so that we're not just fitting you into... You're not just the sweetener on our life, sweetener of our pie, but Lord, we're rather incorporated into your pie. Help us to have this paradigm shift. It is so free. It is free. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. We, We can't merit it. It's free. But it costs us everything because that's the meaning of what it is to come under the reign of God. Lord, help us to come under the reign of God, to be kingdom people who seek your will first, who don't just ask, can I afford it and do I want it, but ask, is it your will? 
Is it your will? Who live on purpose. Where we live is on purpose. How we live is on purpose because we're here to carry out your purpose. Doing your will is the only thing that matters. Lord, there's so much in our culture that we're brainwashed with that that has to confront. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. We give you permission. We lower our defenses. We put our hands up. We say, do it, Lord. Take it all. We yield to you. And Holy Spirit, will you remind us as we walk out of here to keep that sacrifice on the, on the altar and, and to offer that up daily? As Paul said, we, he's crucified daily. We need to be crucified daily. Help us, Lord God, to resist the pull, the magnetic pull of the flesh to reinstate self as the Lord of all in our life, but rather to continually submit to you, to give up everything, to carry our cross, to have you as our only allegiance. In Jesus' name. And all God's people who agree with that said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Would the the prayer team come forward? And if you would like to have prayer for any need whatsoever, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. Let God work on you if that's what's necessary. Go out and be slayed for the kingdom. Amen.